Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, it's in the New Testament, so after, your, after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, after Acts and Romans. But before you get to the book of uh, Hebrews, uh, in, in there, kind of in the, in the meat of the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, as you'll continue to see, uh, I don't know what I, what I got myself into here going through this book. What are we doing? What are we doing? But... Here we are, the next uh, section in, in this book, verses 1 uh, through 16, we'll look at today, and it uh, hardly needs any introduction as far as applicability and relevance to our lives. But we have been walking through, again, this book written by the Apostle Paul, early church leader, the Apostle Paul, inspired by God to the particular church in Corinth that was uh, located in that Greek city, uh, written sometime between 50 and 55 A.D. with uh, good words for them and good words for us today. As you turn there or even see the, the heading in the worship guide, you'll see that, uh, that there's some specific matters being addressed here. It will help you to know that it appears at this point in 1 Corinthians that the Apostle Paul is transitioning to where he's answering some questions that the folks in Corinth have sent to him. They're inquiring about various matters that are going on in their lives, and they want some information for it. They've, they recognize at some level, we saw earlier, that Christ is, uh, has worked in their lives, given them salvation, shown them grace to pay for their sins. And, and they've recognized that love, and they've turned and want to live for him in response to him. And so they, they are anxious to know how to do that. What what steps do we take? Which directions do we go? Which directions do we not go? And Paul writes back to them on some of the topics of interest. We'll see today marriage, marital intimacy, divorce, singleness are all in these 16 verses. And then in chapters that are coming up, we'll see matters of Christian freedom. You know, how much are we constrained by sort of God's commandments? Where are we free to do as we would choose spiritual gifts coming up in a few weeks as well? What are the ways that God has blessed each of us with particular uh, talents, abilities to serve him in the world and in the church? We'll look even further in First Corinthians at giving. What, what does God say about financial giving? Those kind of matters. So those are topics that are at hand and coming up in the weeks ahead that the Corinthians have apparently asked Paul to speak to. And then we also probably should note as well a matter of, uh, of context for us that uh, most likely uh, everything that we read, especially in this section, should be read in light of a significant waves of famine, uh, food, lack, lack of food that came upon that area of Corinth. Uh, you think about how questions that might come to our mind, how our lives would be arranged if all of a sudden we were asking the question, uh, not, you know, what can I do today with the time I have on my hand and the prosperity I enjoy, but what am I going to do with the fact that I'm not sure our community is going to have enough food for people to live the next couple of weeks, the next couple of months? That would sort of uh, emphasize certain questions, bring certain matters to light, and that's part of the context here as Paul gives some universal instruction, helpful for the church at all times, but specific as well to their situation. So read along with me just verses 1 through 16 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'll read aloud as you all read along silently. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. 
The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not as a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one another. Paul's talking about his status in singleness there. Verse eight to the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. Let's clarify. Paul's about to give some instructions that the Lord Jesus specifically said in his ministry. So he's sort of contrasting equal authority and, or, or weight to, to the message from Paul as well as, as God's scripture. But, but here he's distinguishing what Jesus said in his earthly ministry from what, what he's saying. He says, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord... That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, he consents to live with her. She should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife's made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God's called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Let's pray together. Father, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, very specific things that it speaks to us about. Things that we probably need to hear about. Most definitely need to hear about. uh, Even if they make us a bit uncomfortable to think through, to apply, to wrestle with. Uh, Lord, we thank you, though, that you don't leave us where we are, but that you speak to us to invite us where you desire for us to go. We pray that you give us hearts, minds, emotions ready to follow you and all the things you give us because we believe and know and trust that they are good. That we have embraced the scriptures uh, that invite us to trust in the Lord with all our heart. Lean not on our own understanding, but all our ways acknowledge you and believing that you will direct our paths in a good way or help us to walk in faith as we hear your word today. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Well, a famous comedian once said this, the wedding concludes the moment the preacher says the husband and wife shall become one. And the marriage starts the moment they begin arguing which one, right? Well, this passage not only gives us direct directives for our marriages, but also for singleness, for divorce and for matters even of marital intimacy. So it tackles a lot in a short bit of space. 
And I think, although it's a little challenging to kind of sum up all that's in here, if you want to look in the back section of your worship guide, the sermon notes section, uh, this main idea does encapsulate some of it for us. And then we'll look at the details. But is this, since God blesses some for singleness and others for marriage, we should understand how to live out the kingdom of God through those callings. These aren't accidental matters for us if we're in a marriage relationship or we're single. They're things that God has orchestrated for his purposes, not only in general for humanity, but specifically in our lives. Now, uh, there might be several reasons we would maybe dismiss these uh, directives from this passage uh, out of hand. And maybe we should touch on those first and then work our way through them, hopefully. Uh, The first one would be to say, well, that's nice. It seems like it's a lot of talk about marriage, but I'm not married. Well, whether you are have been married and are divorced or whether you've been single and not yet married, whether you're a young person and may someday be married, these are good things to listen to in the event that that would happen. And then also we see that the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, there's some instructions here for those who are called with a particular gift of what we might call celibacy or singleness lifelong. So there's actually a lot here. We might say uh, not only that's nice, I'm not married. We might say that's nice. You don't know my spouse, right? We might take it a step further, of course, recognizing that God does know our situation and not making light of any challenging situations that any of us might face. We might take it a step further and perhaps some here would say that's nice, but I've got a problem. And what you mean by that is you've got a problem that really nobody else knows about. Uh, sexual temptation wise, pornography, adultery, maybe even prostitution. And you haven't yet shared with anybody about that or begun to get help with it. And these passages are hard to apply when you've got that significant issue that's uh, putting tension on your marriage and maybe nobody knows. Might say that's nice. I've tried uh, to develop marital intimacy, but to be honest, I'd rather curl up with a little romantic book than curl up with my hubby. We might say that. And we might say many of us, even if we maybe don't want to go along with any of those other statements, we might say that's nice. We're too busy. We're too distracted. We got too many things going on in our lives to really work at building a strong, healthy marriage. Well, Apostle Paul speaks to really all of these objections that we might have. He starts off in verse one, referencing again, the context is helpful for us. He says now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And it's interesting because they've written to him a statement that seems like it's maybe a mantra, either of the Corinthian community or of their particular church. It's good for a man not to have relations with a woman. Okay. They have said this statement to them. It's interesting because it's almost like the opposite of what Genesis talks about when it says it's not good for a man to be alone. In this case, they say it's good for a man to be alone, man or woman. I'm sure it would apply on the surface. Initially, then it seems like maybe Paul's caving into those at the in the church or would be tempted to cave into those that in this very promiscuous culture we describe with uh, in in Corinth temples to uh, heterosexuality, temples to homosexuality, that that maybe folks in this community, in this church have said, you know what, this this is all bad. 
any kind of intimacy, physical connection, even in marriage, is kind of wrong. So we should just not have anything to do with that. And we certainly know throughout uh, history in the church that's been uh, advocated over some periods of time. The monastic life and so forth has at points been an emphasis that that's really the only the ideal way to live. You've got to stay clear of these sexual matters because there's some sort of evil built into them and there's purity in staying clear from them. But Paul's really just parroting back to them what, uh, you know, what they have said to him. And then he goes on and he he addresses these issues. And we have in mind here, probably, hopefully, the fact that Genesis in the beginning of, Gen- of the scriptures says, for this reason, uh, a man shall leave his father and mother, become united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We've got that positive example there right from the beginning of scriptures, this positive directive that this is a good thing, good part of God's created order. Certainly all matters are corrupted by sin. The book of uh, Song of Solomon in the scriptures in the Old Testament will make you blush if you read it and you really read what's being said there sort of between the lines in certain places, but not so between the lines and other parts of it, uh, advocating, reminding us of the goodness of that part of things that in the right context, in a marriage relationship, that these things are good and right. They're glorifying to the Lord. Paul addresses it from the reactive side, you might say, in verses two on down through verse four, he says, but because of the temptation that's out there, he says, there's a danger out there for each one of us. And if we're married, we ought to be pursuing that. We ought to be keeping the home fires burning, so to speak. Right. And that's a good way to not only develop intimacy and closeness with one another as a couple and also obviously for procreation, but it's also a great benefit to help us resist the many temptations that are out there. He goes on here and says some things that maybe get a little bit more uh, difficult for us in verses three and four. He says the husband should give to his uh, wife her conjugal rights and then the reverse, the wife to her husband says the same thing about the authority of the body. Now, here's what's very interesting about this before we get too far. In the ancient Roman world and Greek world before it as well, and in, let's face it, a lot of places in the world today, for Paul to say both of these things equally about husband and wife is radical. Radical statement. Now, we understand that in our particular cultural context, the church and Christians are sometimes viewed as a bit paternalistic. Uh, where there is some emphasis on the husband leading in the church, or the, the man uh, leading in the church and the husband leading on the home front spiritually, it, it can seem that way. But in fact, the, the gospel, and the scriptural message throughout the world is tremendous. It's a tremendous equalizer between the genders. This this statement would not have been made in the Roman culture that both husband and wife would have sort of an equal claim to one another. Uh, physically, intimacy wise. So it's a it's a it's a challenging statement uh, that way for us to to make sure we digest and understand it and understand that as we look at these verses, I think probably our context is going to affect the way we react to it as well. I don't want to pretend like there aren't folks in here, perhaps mostly uh, females who have been in in some kind of setting at some point in your life, hopefully not in your marriage relationship, maybe before in younger years, where there's been abuse. There's been some kind of force that's been used in a negative way related to the matters we're reading about. And and when you read a passage like this, 
if that was my setting, your initial reaction would be goodness. This sounds awfully, uh, awfully forceful. Husbands, this passage is urging us to seek after our wives, but it's all meant to be within a loving context, right? Not in an abusive way or an overly forceful way, in a loving and gracious and trusting covenant of marriage. So uh, those who maybe have wrestled with that past or that background, you've got to understand this passage in that context. And then uh, perhaps wives uh, to the occasional the, the wife and maybe the occasional husband here, a reminder is given that, yeah, OK, there's going to be seasons maybe where we step away from one another as married couples in terms of physical intimacy. But those should be brief. That shouldn't be the regular order of the day. Uh, let me take it maybe even a step further. And here maybe I'm going beyond a bit of what Paul says and just giving some Maybe pastoral counsel, counsel that we can take for what it's worth. I, I know many of you have been married many years longer than me in here. We did get uh, 20 years under our, under our belt this last year, so we, uh, we're thankful for, for that. Maybe, maybe there's a little bit of wisdom that's come in there or through pastoral counseling. But as I see folks coming in and struggling and maybe having uh, issues as a couple, maybe the, you know conflict issues, communication issues, maybe there's a struggle... Uh, of something that's said that shouldn't have been said or something that should have been said that didn't get said. And, and it's difficult to forgive. It's difficult to be reconciled. And I think we all understand that at points that's going to mean that maybe we move back from one another a little bit, okay, relationally and maybe even physically. But I also frequently encounter folks that don't move back towards one another And even though there ought to be some restoration, that matter ought to be resolved, there's a difficulty doing that. And and there's a reason there's a saying, kiss and make up. There really is. Sometimes where our hearts and our emotions can't quite get there, God brings us together physically, and that kind of leads the way to some of that other reconciliation as well. So that's my encouragement. If there's folks in here and you're sitting and you you haven't really been close intimately physically as a couple because you've had some tension, maybe there's some real counseling that needs to happen there. Maybe there's some real brokenness. I don't want to make light of that. Maybe, though, we need to kiss and make up. Right. And and let God do his process even through that good gift. Interesting that the Apostle Paul says that uh, one reason for us as couples, those who are married here, we're going to get to singleness in just a moment, but those who are married here, to uh, take a bit of a break from that is what? What does he say in verse 5? It's interesting. Take a look here with me. Do not deprive one another except by agreement, so something that you agree upon, for a limited time, so give some directives there, but why? That you may devote yourselves to prayer. Let me just say this for sake of time today. In our culture, again, are there scarcely two behaviors that we view as categorically distinct? Uh, uh, A husband and wife sitting on the couch praying together and a husband and wife going into the bedroom together. Right. In our culture, those are two diametrically distinct things. And the Apostle Paul actually says both of these things are correlated. Both of these things are about growing closer to the Lord, growing closer to one another Reminding ourselves of the good gifts that he's given to us. Fascinating to me that prayer would be mentioned here along with these other physical elements. It's all about the intimacy that God's invited us to. Maybe 
some time set apart for prayer together is what's at hand. Maybe we've talked everything through ad nauseum and we don't want to pray together any more than we want to be together physically. Maybe we can pray together first and then maybe the other will come as well. Last thing I want to say under this first point about marital intimacy, just because of the cultural setting that we find ourselves in, is that, again, the Apostle Paul is an equal opportunity in terms of his confronting of sin. We saw in chapter 6, last week it was, or the week before, that he speaks about uh, those that would pursue physical intimacy outside of marriage, before marriage or in adultery, as married folks, uh, heterosexually. He speaks about homosexuality as well. And I I just want to point out here in these verses, his model is, in fact, a man and a woman together. That's his model for that marriage relationship. And remind us that the, uh, the Scriptures... Don't tell us difficult things or confront our culture with difficult things to to kind of make us feel bad or to put us as believers in an awkward spot of having to explain to a culture why we believe things that are sort of out of sync with the rest of the culture. It's like this. If you go to a doctor and you have a heart condition, I don't want a doctor. You don't want a doctor that's afraid to speak to someone about a heart condition. And won't do it because he's afraid of what me, the patient, might think of him because he's told me I have a heart condition. I want him to tell me I've got a heart condition. Why? If I don't know, I can't get the help. I can't get the cure that I need. This is true for all the matters we face, but certainly the the storm we have in our culture over this matter of homosexuality as well. God's grace is sufficient for all things. We are all invited to repent and receive faith. That's true for every single one of us. But that is the pathway of the gospel to recognize we do have a heart condition and we need his transformation. Singleness. Look with me at verses seven through nine. Interesting again that the Apostle Paul speaks to these matters. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am talking about his status as a single person, but each has his own gift from God. So he describes this as a gift. Okay, so there's a distinctive way. And that in fact, God may have hardwired some for singleness. And, and we're clearly describing here that others would be uh, directed towards marriage. Goes on in verse eight, he says to the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. He says it's not that complicated to actually discern this. Uh, Those that are not intended to marry, they they won't have an impulse towards it. Those that uh, do have that impulse. I just want to say this. It's challenging. You know, I don't know if you know this. Uh, Now, we have folks in our congregation that are divorced. We have folks that have been single their whole life. We have folks that are widowed, certainly in our congregation. Um, But there are a lot of married people in our in our church. And so I think it's important to remember that roughly 40 percent, not of Birmingham in general, but of our over the mountain area are are folks who are single for very for whatever any of those reasons. Right. And and therefore, we as a church need to constantly be thinking about how are we doing at welcoming, at ministering to folks. Uh, I've loved it in the last couple of years in our life group. Now, it's it's been some sad and heart heart aching, heartbreaking situations that have have uh, been part of some of these uh, scenarios. But for us to have single folks in our life group 
And for us to have six or seven married couples in there and several, three or four uh, single folks to be able to love one another, connect, have relationship with each other. That's just another area where we can show the power of Christ, the beauty of the gospel, that we don't have to kind of be in our little niche and our little enclave. We can embrace one another, get to know each other, build relationships across a barrier that's kind of one that our society has erected, but really shouldn't be there. So let's be praying through that and thinking how we as a church can continue to uh, to do that, especially to welcome those who uh, God may have put in a situation of singleness uh, for whatever those reasons may be. Last thing we want to look at, and uh, as if it wasn't dicey already, here we go. Gets even more interesting, perhaps. The last part of this passage, verses 10 through 16, I want to say this, I guess, first by introduction. Um, I mean, we live in a culture with uh, rampant divorce for all kinds of reasons. A lot of adultery going on. There's a lot of folks that their perspective on marriage is if you're not happy, you kind of move on. Uh, We don't even need to summarize the statistics and and so forth. But here's the deal. Because of that, we can kind of lean towards one of either perspectives, probably even in the church community. We can kind of be affected by that, uh, you know, perspective of our society to where we as Christians say, yeah, my marriage is probably, you know, disposable too. you know, if things aren't going well, then maybe we set it aside. Right. So we can take our view of marriage and kind of ratchet it down below the level that the, the Lord would have for it. And we can also do the opposite. We can out of fear and frustration and trying to offset that cultural perspective We can so elevate uh, marriage that we almost make it to the view of a sacrament or something like there's never a reason that uh, a marriage may have to be dissolved. And I think it's really important to see that Paul speaks to to both of those situations. Now, we know he quotes in verse 10. He says this is this is the Lord, not him. So he says this is from the Gospels. We know that the Lord Jesus speaks about divorce and speaks, of course, we know in Matthew five, not only that that we ought not to try to pursue that as a solution to our problems, but that we ought to only do it in the case of uh, physical adultery. So we know that the Apostle Paul is speaking about that as well. He speaks there about the permanency of marriage. He goes on in verse 12, you see, to emphasize even more the permanency. He says this. I don't know if you followed his statement. He's he's talking about the situation, some of which we have, you know, even in our own church body here where one spouse has come to faith in Christ and the other has not. That's that's the scenario here he's describing. And you can imagine, I mean, the priorities on the home front would change dramatically. I read uh, one commentary gentleman who had had written about his situation. This was he had become a Christian later, but he's talking about how he felt when his wife became a believer. He said this when uh, when asked what he found so difficult about his wife's newfound faith in Christ, he stressed two things. First, she was no longer the person whom he'd originally fallen in love with. Right. <laughs> you're getting changed by Jesus. You're going to be a different person. Now, hopefully we're better, but. You know, you're different and we kind of all like things to be the, the same. So he, he observed that. And then he said there was another is that the other thing was there was another man, capital M, about the house 
to whom she was all the time referring every decision and whom she would consult for advice. Right. There was the Lord in her life and that was shaping it. So you can imagine the Corinthians saying, look, we're on a separate page now. Let's just let this marriage go. And even the Christians in the church saying, well, if that person's not a believer, maybe we should just let that go. It's interesting. Then Paul's instructions. Did you follow it? He basically says this, that if the uh, unbelieving person wants to stay in the marriage, even where there's a great divide spiritually, they ought to stay that way. They ought to remain. That's how strong that bond of marriage is. But then, of course, he reminds us. Not only that there's a situation where maybe there's been physical adultery in the relationship and maybe uh, there's no ability to reconcile that. There's maybe not genuine repentance or restoration. And so a, a divorce is at hand that there's also a situation where if an unbeliever uh, wants to leave the relationship, the believer is not bound. A believing person is not enslaved, it says. You don't have to continue on that relationship. You get the picture? So marriage is very highly elevated by Scripture above the general cultural attitude that we have where it's sort of disposable if, if it needs to be. And then at the same time, we ought to be careful not to, to say that it's so uh, binding that it can't ever be broken. Uh, there are reasons sometimes for that to occur. I like what um, the commentator prior says elsewhere. This is a book I've been reading as we go through these verses and uh, we're about to to conclude here. I'll, I'll say this. He says, if this is the express command of the Lord, he's talking about the Lord's prohibition against unjustified divorce. If this is the express commandment of the Lord, it does no good whatsoever to mentally flirt with what is so clearly beyond limits. If, as not infrequently happens, a Christian couple think they've made a mistake in getting married and it's important for them to accept the authority of the Lord's teaching to apply themselves to their relationship and the conviction that if they work at it, God can make it new and vital. Do we believe that today? Big question, isn't it? Challenging one for us to digest. And perhaps, again, circling back to some of the issues in our culture, one of the best things we can do, in addition to speaking to our culture about what marriage is, how we, it is defined biblically, is to develop those kind of relationships that the world around us looks at and says, wow, these folks are bound by the Lord. Yeah, they don't even get along sometimes. And yet they're working together to grow as a couple to honor the Lord. That would be a picture of good, healthy, heterosexual marriage for our society to see. And so often we... Uh, in our sin, we dismiss that and, and turn away from it. Well, let me conclude this way. We, uh, we asked or we raised a couple of uh, objections earlier. We said, that's nice, but I'm not married. So that's one objection to kind of hearing the things from these verses. My encouragement would be prayerfully consider, if, that, if that's your situation, prayerfully consider whether God has called you to singleness. If, in fact, he, he has, uh, move forward in that. Even be thankful for that. The Apostle Paul says that's a, that's a good thing. I don't have to feel like you're uh, some way distinct in that way. The, the Lord has called each to their own calling. Be encouraged by that. And as a church body, let's, let's encourage that as well for those that are called that way. That's nice, you might say. You don't know my spouse. I don't. The Lord does. He knows those things. 
the things that we can bring to him in prayer for our spouse. He cares about, he's concerned, he's not absent from your marriage situation. He knows what's going on. That's nice, you may have said again at the beginning, but I've got a problem. I already outlined those problems. Uh, Folks, if that's the situation for those sitting around here today, uh, let me encourage you. Get together with somebody you trust, a fellow believer. Get together with one of the leaders in the church or wherever you can find her. Get together with a group and and own those things, acknowledge those things, and begin to work on them. Uh, The best time to begin a mile of a thousand journeys, a journey of a thousand miles, is today. Best time to begin a journey of a thousand miles is today. So if that's where you are, let me encourage you to... Bring those matters to light. It, it may have some serious consequences for your marriage when you reach that time of sharing it with your spouse. But that's got to happen too. living living a, a daydream is not not going to work. We, we've got to come to the Lord and come to one another. Uh, that's nice. You say I'd kind of rather do this or that. We're kind of busy. I don't see the Apostle Paul saying that. <laughs> he says, uh, yeah, I understand you're in the middle of a famine, people in Corinth. I still encourage you to, to have connection with one another intimately in marriage. All right. So we got all kinds of stuff going on in our lives, but we don't have a famine. Right. We at least know where our food's coming. We're going to survive. We as well ought to seek that closeness with one another and pursue it for God's glory and for the strengthening of our marriages as well. Let's pray. Father, we uh, recognize today uh, folks in this congregation coming from all different places. Uh, Indeed, we've got folks here that have been widowed. We've got folks that were divorced maybe before they became a believer. Uh, Folks that have been divorced, they didn't want the divorce, but it it, uh, was a circumstance they ended up in. Through their spouse's choices, we've got folks here that, uh, Lord willing, have some healthy and vibrant marriages, even though all things are marked by sin. We've got folks, I'm sure, out here that are hanging by a thread. Maybe folks that got divorce papers in their uh, hand on the kitchen table at home. I don't know. Father, we uh, pray that you would move us to the things that glorify you. And, Father, we pray for those as well in our midst that you'd be calling to a life of singleness and that you would help them to delight in that and glorify you. I know many of us in the church have been blessed by various uh, church leaders who weren't mandated that way, but were called by you that way and have written commentaries and uh, things that have blessed us because they, they had time that others of us would spend in marriage and in family development. They had that to make available to bless others. And and so we trust, Lord, that you're doing that in the midst of the lives of people in our church body that are called to singleness as well. Father, we pray that you would allow us to take these things, many of which are challenging, certainly many of which are challenging to me, and allow us to apply them for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.